This is Colonia Cast, episode 29. You can find us at theturtleroom.org slash coloniacast. You can learn more about the program there as well as access the Colonia Cast Student Research Fund. I do want to mention that real quick. Uh, we're really grateful. We've received quite a bit of donations so far, which is really awesome. Uh, but we're looking to essentially at the end of the year with the Turtle Room Board, uh, we're going to collaborate and discuss different student-led research projects to donate to. Uh, we're probably going to open this up to, to listeners to comment on too. So listening to the show can be directly contributing to student-led turtle research, which is really cool. So Mount helps and I uh, just want to put that out. They were joined by Eric Muncher, who's a regional scientist with SWCA Environmental Consultants. He's also one of the co-founders of the North American Freshwater Turtle Research Group uh, that works with the Turtle Survival Alliance, focused on uh, monitoring turtle populations in different rivers and springs across the United States. Uh, we're really excited to have him on today to talk about North American turtles. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Eric. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Eric. Um, glad to have you here. So uh, this is the first question that we ask pretty much everybody, just, you know, as an icebreaker, what got you into turtles? Uh, it's, it's actually a really, it's a good question to start off with. Um, I really wasn't targeting turtles early on in my career. I was more into snakes. And it took meeting a herpetologist out of Penn State. And I went, I did a study abroad with him in Belize when I was 18 and all his work in Belize was on star typus, which is the giant Mexican musk turtle. I was hooked right away, you know, kind of kicking off my turtle career with a really cool turtle. And I spent about 40 days down there with him uh, for this uh, study abroad. Uh, we caught a whole bunch of other species, white mud turtles, Tabasco mud turtles, things like that. But it was the, it was the giant Mexican mud turtle that, that the musk turtle that sold me. That's awesome. I actually, so I didn't realize that, but now it's starting to make a little more sense. Now I see where all the Belize connections come in. It kind of came uh, full circle. Oh, okay. So that that was separate from that, or were you in, you were inspired by that trip? I guess I was. I was inspired by that trip. I was a freshman at Penn State at that point when I met Dr. Brian Hegg, and uh, it was a study abroad for seven credits. Uh, most of it was tropical biology oriented, but uh, a lot of the stuff he was doing was targeting. Uh, turtle species, giant Mexican musk turtles, white-lipped mud turtles were his primary targets. He was looking at musk at that point. He wanted to do DNA stuff with the musk. Uh, so we were catching everything we could find. And uh, it just that kind of research, uh, demographic stuff really intrigued me at that point. And at the end of that that project, I asked if, if he was doing anything more. And I was a freshman at Penn State at that point. I was, I was at a branch campus, which Penn State is a large... Uh, uh, college group where you have a main campus that has 50,000 plus students and then it has a whole bunch of branch campuses across Pennsylvania. I was at one of those at that time and I was on the, the verge of moving up to the main campus the next semester. He said, yeah, he, he was offering a study uh, project in Florida as a spring break class at Wakaiwa Spring State Park, which is a, one of two only uh, wild and scenic rivers in Florida, Wakaiwa Springs and Wakaiwa River. It's a really Seen, uh, scenic, beautiful state park in Florida. Well, he offered that class for all of spring break during my freshman, sophomore year. I took the class, then I became his teaching assistant the next two years. And that's kind of what birthed NAFTURG, the North American Freshwater Turtle Research Group. At that point, we were just called Central Florida Freshwater Turtle Research Group because we only had the one study site. 
But um, after that, uh, Dr. Haig kind of left Penn, Penn State. I went to Florida to do my grad work on diabetic terrapins. And he went to Washington and said he couldn't keep the, the Wakawa Springs study going. So we had five years of data on that park and it was going to end. He said he couldn't do it anymore. So he knew I was moving to Florida and he just said, try to keep it going. We kept it going through the grad project, the grad student group in uh, at University of North Florida, where I did my master's. And we started opening it up to anyone that we could, friends of friends and the public. And it caught wind with the Florida Department of Environmental Protection. They really like the data we are gathering at Wakaiwa Springs. Um, they have any real long-term data sets out of any of the Florida Springs other than uh, Dr. Malin's stuff out Rainbow Run at that point. Jerry's work had not started that uh, that early yet. So they just kept asking if we would take on other sites. We took on Volusa Blue Spring next. Uh, then we took on Manatee and Fanning, Peacock Springs. It just kind of snowballed over the years uh, to include study sites that the, the state wanted and then anything that we actually decided like oh there could be interesting data here this is in the middle of a couple of other other study sites it would be good to add this park as well so that's how NAFTA really blew up is through word of mouth through state permitting really and um through how tsa found us was that in 2010, TSA was at, in Orlando at that point, and I got contacted by Rick and by Andrew Wald asking if they could use the Wakawa Springs uh, study site as the first field trip for TSA. So we're, we're yeah, of course, Br um, bring whoever you want. Um, Wakawa is a really large study site. We can handle a lot of people. We got like 20 plus people that come from the conference to, to snorkel in Wakawa Springs State Park at that point. It was great. Uh, we caught like 200 turtles that day. Everyone got to see every species that, you know, all eight species that we capture that capture there. People got to see me break my thumb. It was, it was a good time. Oh, man. <laughs> we caught a, uh, a snapping turtle that we had not seen for 10 years at that point. And we were all pretty excited. It was, uh, and when it was originally marked in like 2001, it was a 10 pound snapping turtle. When we recaptured it, it was a 42 pound snapping turtle. And Kind of let my guard down, got bit. <laughs> That's not, did it, it, so it broke your thumb or it, it just. Yeah, don't recommend, don't get bit by a snapping turtle. Right, yeah, that's not <laughs> a good thing. What, so whose idea was it originally to incorporate sort of the citizen science aspect to NAFTA? Because that, I mean, it seems, it's, it seems like maybe for, scientists right that might be kind of a risky thing because you're dealing with these kind of i mean they, they could be considered dangerous environments but realistically probably there's a lot of liability there how and and but it works it definitely works i mean i've i've helped with a lot of these projects since about sixth grade and really grateful for some of the opportunities it's created for me but it's just kind of like when you look at it up front someone who doesn't necessarily know what's going on might think that that's just crazy, but how does that, so how did that come about and, and kind of what do you get from doing the citizen science that you couldn't get with a small group of, I guess, experts, right? It's So uh, I think it, it's kind of a twofold where there are certain sites that are a little problematic to include everybody. So having that small group of experts will work better in those instances. But when you have a large study site where you can kind of manage the, the 
difficulty. You can manage the the safety. Like Wakawa Springs State Park, that that study that site sees a million people a year, whether it's from swimming, uh, you know, snorkeling, uh, paddle boating. So it's a relatively safe environment to go to in Florida. There are, there are alligators there, of course. The water's deep, but they don't have many issues. Uh, nuisance alligators are removed. Um, so it's a kind of a study site that we can that we kind of um, started with with the, the the citizen science aspect, and it's gone really well there. Uh, it's a, a study site that we can throw a lot of people at and get a lot of turtles from. So it, people enjoy going to the these study sites and seeing and being a part of it. Um, Kamal Springs is another one in Texas. Uh, Itchituckney Springs with Dr. J. Uh, that study site's so big, you need a lot of people in the water in boats to manage it. So it's a big help in one where if the study site is so large, you need an army to actually survey it correctly. Um, And it it really benefits uh, people who are just showing interest in in, um, field science and and being being a part of something that they normally wouldn't be be able to be a part of goes a long way. It's really helped us with getting the word out on the research that we're doing and it's uh, helped us with funding. Uh, certain people actually had no idea things like projects like this existed, and once they become a part of it, uh, they see the importance of it, and they're they're willing to, to help with funding, to help us find funding. So it, it's been a it's it's been a really good working relationship both ways. Um, and a lot of the work that we've done in Florida, I don't think could could have sustained itself for as long as it has twenty three years now. Uh, it's not for the large group of people that we've been be able to get, and through that, we'll find people who want to come back year after year after year. Right. It's definitely reached a lot of the community. I mean, it's surprising year after year. It seems like a lot of the same people come out, but you've also got a lot of new faces all the time. It, it's really spreads around. Um, maybe you can give some people just, I think we want to focus on all the sort of different sites and some of the unique things about them. Uh, but maybe before for, for listeners that aren't as familiar with kind of the numbers of turtles that are being caught in in some of the sites here because this it's not something that you would necessarily guess that the magnitude of of of, of turtles density sort of we're getting uh but what 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 are sort of the numbers of turtles that, that you're finding at some of these these sites so wakaiwa spring state park that we've been monitoring since 1999 we have just over six thousand turtles marked there now 6,000 turtles of eight species. Uh, total capture-wise, we're, we're around the 14,000, 15,000 for total captures. We get a lot of recaptures over the, that period of time. Uh, the Sudami species, we actually just published a really cool paper on that gives the fir- first 15 years of data on population parameters. So uh, we have about 60% recapture right now over the, the 23 years that we were at that study site. But other study sites like Kamal Springs, uh, we'll hit 4,000 marked Stenothrus odorata, the common musk turtle there by November. Uh, overall, I think we're just about at 6,500 turtles marked there. So that study site's been going on for 10 years. It only has four species, so it's less species diverse than Wakawa Springs, but we're seeing about the same amount of numbers there. Uh, overall, uh, we have nine study sites in Florida, four in Texas, uh, we have one in, in uh, New Jersey and one in Washington. We just kicked off Belize. Altogether, I think we're looking at about 15,000 marked, 16,000 marked animals um, and well over 25,000 recaptures. Yeah, I think that that's a good testament, too, to the, the power of in- including people. I mean, th- those numbers are just 
pretty incredible. It's it's really interesting. Um, you mentioned the Comal side, and that's the one that I I uh, I guess I started at, so I've got the most experience there. But there's just so much about. I mean, you've only got what is it four or five species in that that one system, but they're all so unique in in terms of kind of how they compare to other populations. Oh no, it froze up. <laughs> uh, the the one there that's really impressive is the, um and 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 just the size of the heads there. Uh, what just, what's the latest with that? I guess and in, in terms of I, I think you analyzed kind of what they're eating and 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 sort of the megacephaly there, but that's just an incredible thing. What's the latest with kind of that 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 work? So we had a undergraduate um, student, Madeline Morrison, actually take a look at the diet a couple years ago. Um, she kept 50 of them over a weekend and analyzed the feces. And she uh, had a snail expert out of Florida help her analyze the snail shells that she was finding in the feces. And they ID'd four invasive species of snail, three species of melanoides. So they're the, the, the curly Q, really thick shelled snails that you find in the pet trade a lot often. And then uh, giant ram's horn snail. It's a really big snail, really thin shell, but a lot of protein uh, in, the, in the, that snail. And they were just gorging on. Uh, primarily, you know, it's what we found primarily in their diet. Uh, and um, as you mentioned, every single adult there at Kamal Springs has megacephaly to the point where their head widths are 28 to 33 millimeters wide. That, this, is a com this is a common musk turtle. We don't see head widths 33 millimeters wide, millimeters wide in our loggerhead musk turtles in Florida. I mean, it's about, it's about 50% of a graptomase of a barber's map turtle. I think about 66 millimeters is what it was for the barber. So that's pretty ridiculous. For we have one site in Florida where the our minor are bigger, and that's Manti Springs. <laughs> Every other site uh, that we have, our Odoratus and Kamal are bigger than our minor in Florida. Hmm. It's just because there's so much invasive food material there, which is really interesting. We know when the invasive snails were released. Uh, there's actually publications on that. Uh, they were they were dumped into the local waterways in the Guadalupe River system back in the 70s. So we kind of know a start point of when this food, this invasive food material was, was available for the, the odoratus to the prey upon. And I have museum records from all over the region, including Landa Lake, that show that prior to snail release, the, the odoratus were normal size. So it's definitely food-based, uh, really quick phenotypic plastic, plasticity response. Uh, pretty interesting. Um, I, I have a grad project in mind for a student to, to really go around the surrounding counties and sample every freshwater um, habitat available to look at uh, odoratus there and food plots there to see if the odoratus are the same in Kamal Springs are the snails in all the freshwater habitats around Kamal? I doubt it. I, 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 we have another study site 30 minutes away, and the odoratus there are normal size. So that's sort of the next plan yeah. is to look at kind of sites in closer proximity and compare the head widths. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. that's interesting so, stuff. Yeah, big undertaking for a grad student. Right. I, it's, it's interesting that you said that prior to the release of the invasives, they seem to be normal. That, yeah. That's kind of a, a strange, and, and I, I mean, this is kind of a different realm, but even like phenotypic plasticity, I think a lot of times we think of it as something that is fully kind of determined by 
you know, environmentally determined, but it seems like there might be some work. At least it's kind of on the rise showing that it's, uh, well, well, this is sort of still, um, it's not really confirmed, but I, I was talking to Dr. Schaefer about this a few weeks back at JMIH, and he was saying that it's possible some of those those responses we're seeing could actually be genetic in nature, essentially modified genetically when they're young by an environmental stimulus that actually sort of changes the, the, the genetic code in real time through these epigenetic. And so it would be interesting to look at that too, but I'm not sure that that that's a whole different sort of uh, probably more of a molecular biochemistry sort of question that you'd have pathways and yeah another another project another question to answer really um if, if you take an odoratus from outside this environment it could not function like these odoratus it could not eat what they're eating well it almost doesn't seem like it's beneficial to them either because a lot of them it, it's literally they're bleeding it, it, the 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 uh i guess the plates are kind of just shaped like kind of sort of sloughing off the head yeah, the, the beak definitely looks malformed at, uh, at that point. It would be really interesting to get some uh, some, some photos of uh, some x-rays of that and uh, see what the skeletal, skeletal structure looks like at this point. But um, right, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're big, heavy turtles. So uh, body condition-wise, I think they're doing fairly good. And we're, 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 we actually have recaptures from all 10 years. So we just sampled back um back in may i believe and we we're catching turtles from 2012 that we had not seen in 10 years so it's pretty interesting yeah that's the other thing about them as well right is the the sort of extreme number of new turtles you get every time that was fascinating the the biomass estimates there and yeah, yeah that's uh, really interesting that uh, 2019 paper we put out put our population estimate at that site for uh Uderaz at 14,000 plus which at this point I think is off. I think there's more. Uh, we're we're going to get ready to do a decade paper uh, after our, our next trip, and uh, I, I, it'll, it'll probably definitely have a higher estimate top value. Yeah, that is, I mean, it, in a small area, too. We're not talking a huge river system, too. <laughs> this is, what, about 8.6 hectares? Is that the measurement? Yeah. Yeah, yeah something. So that's just pretty incredible. I mean, it's it's got to be... It, there's some other really large estimates, but not for, for Kinesternids. I think that that's a, yeah. That, uh, yeah. When we were looking at that paper, I believe that was the tops for the species. I think uh, Linda, uh, Peter Lindemann had a, another really good estimate for his Lake Erie population. And he was actually seeing megacephaly there uh, because of zebra mussel predation. Right. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's certainly not a phenomenon just there, but it's something interesting in yeah. the, that sort of competitive release. Really interesting to see it. I also notice in there, so you've done, I think about four papers looking at population parameters, like you said, at all these different springs. I think was the most recent one, the Comal paper. Uh, no, the, the two uh, papers from Kaiba, the two Sternothrys and then the two Sedemi species came out last year and this year. Okay, right, right. I, I'm thinking because those were more like focusing on those two species. I'm thinking about just the springs themselves. Oh, so yeah, but, yeah, that's sort of where, yeah. That, but well, in that in the Comal paper, I noticed with the um, with the I guess the survival and recapture probabilities, the models predicted for the Odoratus that they were both um, 
I guess, sex dependent. So it seems like there might be some difference. In, but, but this was only for the Sternothorus. I mean, why would that be the thoughts behind? It, it's a, That's a really good question. It, it, it's a very interesting site for a few different reasons. Um, it's essentially a closed system. So you don't really come across closed systems in nature very often. And the reason why Kamal Springs is a closed system is it's a giant aquifer-fed lake. It's, in essence, the whole 24 acres is a is one spring. And it's been modified over the years by, by, by man to include a, a uh, spillway at the very end of it. So you have no inland flow going into Kamal Springs. It's all aquifer-fed. The only outlet flow is a now an eight-foot drop um, spillway. So if turtles drop down the spillway, they'll never get back to the to the lake. Essentially, they're going to now be in the Kamal River or the Guadalupe River at some point. They're never going to make it back. So the only thing you have going for the, the, the closed system is birth and death. You don't have over, 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 overland flow with you know, new immigrants coming in. So... You have that going for the, the system, and since it has been such a man-altered site, you have a community golf course on one side. Um, you have high-dollar residents all throughout the, the lake, including the escarpments. You have million-dollar mansions on top of the escarpment on the one side. And the other is a city park that sees over a million people a year uh, to fish, paddle boat, uh, whatever. So it's a highly altered, manipulated site. And I really think that it shows, due to lack of nesting habitat, the female Odratus have. So we actually, our sex ratio, if you saw in the paper, was like three to one male to female. Really, really poor for the female side. The only thing going for them is there's just so many of them. So I really think it speaks for the, that is the, they're nesting wherever they possibly can. People's backyards, people's leaf piles, the, the golf course. Uh, we've actually seen black vultures chase female odoratus off the golf course. That's uh, does anyone have that on video? No, I wish. or was that just no? It's 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 snorkelers coming out, getting out of the golf course, and just lucking upon the observation. That's uh, I wish we would all carry GoPros with us, so we can get a little bit more of these cool docu- these observations documented. Is is that something that might happen in the future? I don't know. I mean, that's kind of a lot funding wise, but yeah, I think it's that? just whoever whoever comes with a GoPro at this point. I wish uh, I could get a grant that would allow me to get some fun things like that. Most of my funding goes to either pit tags because we have twenty thousand turtles pit tag now. Um, we go through those pretty quickly per year, or to to new to do tracking studies. We've been doing we've started tracking studies on Macroachilles and then on Cunisternum acutum, and tracking studies are fairly expensive. Right, right. Yeah, that seems like it's the sort of the majority cost, like you said. The uh, one other thing, too, for Comal, then maybe we can talk about some of the other projects that I was curious about because I re- this was sort of early on that, that you were doing the work with this, and I'm, I haven't heard much about it since. The, uh, the common snapping turtles there are in kind of a lower abundance than you might expect, although the, the actual numbers of them, when you look at the individuals you have, for as small as the system is, maybe it's not so surprising. It, it's what, like 21 individuals, something like that? Oh, we're, up to, we're up to 36. Okay, so it's yeah, actually so more than one. that. I mean, yeah. But, well, so they were having a lot of kind of issues with lesions on the heads, and, and it seemed pretty intense. 
I know there was some speculation it was the leeches, but then maybe that's sort of the the effect of some other cause. They're more lethargic, so they get more leeches. But at, what's sort of the latest with that? A lot of the the COVID sort of dampened a lot of these things. Yeah, yeah. COVID kind of shut down a lot of the the projects themselves. We lost a year and a half on any sampling for any of the study sites, other than the Macrochile stuff because it's so local. I can do it myself with a very small crew. But with that, uh, that's just uh, something that I would love to have another student take on. Uh, it's just a side project that I think needs a little bit more attention uh, where you have a lab that really can start looking at some of this. There is a sister site that's San Marcos Springs. It's not even 30 miles away from Kamal Springs. Dr. Francis Rose has been doing that over the past 15 years. They have over 200 uh, collider marked there. Uh, and it's a very, very similar ecosystem. He, had, he does see the same things that we're seeing with the lethargy and the extreme leech load. He actually mentioned to me uh, recently that he has seen leech load kill uh, common snappers. So, but the leech load at Kamal Springs, it, it's, it's bad. Uh, whenever we catch them, we clean them up, and they are usually pretty poor looking. Uh, it's just odd that the, the Odorondas are so abundant and have no issues. The, we have a huge population of Sudemis Tixana there. We have over 1,200 Sudemis now marked there. They have no issues with leeches. We have 400 uh, red ear sliders there. No, no problems with leeches. So it, it seems very species specific. And uh, with all the study sites that we have across Florida, we've never seen Collider in such poor condition. So it definitely is another another study that needs to be done. Um, something that uh, that can a student can dedicate time to. Yeah, that one was, and there was some speculation maybe the golf course affluent was also impacting them, but I guess that's tough to quantify. Yeah, I, I would think so, simply because it's such a it's the largest spring system west of the Mississippi. I mean that that spring puts out two hundred million gallons plus a day on, on on median flow, so not during drought conditions, over two hundred million gallons a day. It's it has some significant flow to it, so I just don't see that being an issue across the whole lake. Maybe very close to the golf course itself in a very short period of time before that that gets flushed down the system into the, the Kamal river or the Guadalupe river, which would be interesting to see is if, if you could catch uh collider in the Guadalupe river and see what they look like. Right. Right. And yeah, that, so that's really interesting too, about it being closed. I I've never actually been to the, the spillway you mentioned, so I kind of figured that it was continuous with the Comal River itself where it meets yep. the Guadalupe. So there's no – I mean, a lot of the Florida springs, you get crossover between the main, the main rivers and springs, but oh, there's absolutely. none of that occurring. No, so that could explain – because you don't get soft shells, the Guadalupe, the spiny soft shells, but maybe that's why because you don't have we've, any sort of – We've caught one in 10 years. Right. We're, in Florida, we, we have now over 120 ferox tattooed and, and pit tagged. Um, I honestly think it's the spillway. So nothing can come up the Kamal River or Guadalupe River into Land Lake, and Land Lake, uh, where Kamal Springs is, uh, I just think the habitat's atypical. Uh, half the half the lake is covered in eelgrass, so they can't really hide themselves in sand, and the rest of the lake is not even not sand; it's it's clay and snail shell. So it just seems like it would not be the preferred habitat for a soft shell because they want to dig themselves down into substrate. 
Right. Has there been, I'm, I'm curious now too, because thinking about kind of long term, if the, I mean, there's so many turtles in there, it's, it's probably not much of an issue, but for some of the Florida Springs, you've done kind of, I guess, uh, population growth modeling. If you kind of invert your capture histories, you can get kind of the reverse sort of set of parameters. But, and yeah. you've done that with sort of Florida sites, but that hasn't happened with Comal yet. But it would be interesting to look on mo like hundred year time scales and see what happens to all the turtle populations. If so we'll, we'll be able to do that in this decade paper. That's one of the targets is to treat this decade paper like one of the Florida papers where we're looking at that over time. Because the first Kamal paper that was released was just a three-year paper uh, kind of indicating the abundance of what we were seeing from the start. Because in three years, we had, we had about 1,000 Odoratus captured at that point. And we we're like, this site's incredible. So it was kind of to set the stage for a decade paper later on. That's really how we go into our study sites. Is it's, it's a decade plan. Every study site we have in Florida, Texas, Belize, we want to look at a 10-year period. At that 10-year period, we'll reevaluate afterwards what we want to continue with. But the Wakaiwa Springs, it just that, that is such a special site. We're going to continue it until we're done, until we can. It's on its 23rd year now. We're going to continue it as long as possible. Some some other sites will probably have the answers we want at that point. We'll stop and move on and start some a study site somewhere else. But Kamal Springs is another one of the special ones where there's so many questions to, to, to look at. This first 10-year period was kind of just to set the stage for long-term demography. And then we'll go, we'll do another 10 years where we're, we'll continue that, but we'll do side studies like this Odorata side study. And an Odorata's movement study, I think, in that site would be very interesting. Yeah, I mean, this long-term data is just going to be incredible to see sort of over these sort of decade scales just to see how things change. I mean, you're going to have some amazing data sets that just don't really exist. So so you mentioned the Belize, um, the Belize project. Maybe we can talk about this a bit because this was really exciting. And I actually uh, had the opportunity to go down there and experience that for at least part of the time. But uh Jungle <laughs> said otherwise for the rest of it, but that that's, but so that's really an exciting thing, um, and already off to a great start. I mean, it, in terms of kind of what you're doing there, it's kind of the same thing. You want to get sort of baselines for the populations of turtles there, but that site's unique because it's not really there wasn't. I mean, we you kind of know what to expect to to a large extent when you go into a North American or or I guess a, a site in the United States. But this Belize site, I mean, what what were some of the what, what was going through your head kind of in the first few years of doing this and some of the things you were finding? Uh, it was just a, a really cool opportunity through TSA and 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 the Be Free uh, group. If, if you guys have Be Free is uh, Belize Foundation for Environmental Research and Education. They are incredible people. Uh, highly recommend going. Um, Jacob Marlin and Heather Barrett, who run it, are fantastic. And they had an idea that they brought to us where they wanted us to look at a long-term project, just like we do in all the spring study sites and the, the other uh, freshwater stuff that we do. They wanted to do a 10-year demography site at Be Free because they have a ton of turtles there, they said. While Be Free's main focus on turtles was the Hicketee breeding and, and uh, research, they, have, they said they had, they had every other species there native to Belize. So we wanted to come down set up a long-term parameter study on, on certain ecosystems in Be Free. The first study site, the first uh, year was last year where a small group of us went down and we tried to find 
long-term sites within the 1100 acre beef free property boundary. We found a couple of those really, really good sites for certain species like the white lip mud turtle, the, um, the uh, giant Mexican musk turtle and the Tabasco mud, uh, musk turtle. Um, the, this year uh, was a kind of broadening the reach of the study where we wanted to open the project to other people. Uh, so anyone could come down, uh, experience be free, be a part of the, the actual research project. And we expanded our permit to include all of the, the preserves that surround Bee Free. So essentially a million acres of rainforest around Bee Free. To include the six mile road in, all those savanna habitats, the pine savanna habitats, and just try to figure out what turtle assemblage and populations are using the, the region around Bee Free. And in the two years now, I think we're, we're at 620 turtles of eight species. Yeah, I mean the, everything in the is everything in the country, all sort of turtle wise, yep. not including sea turtles, right? I mean, I I think I only saw, I mean, I I only when I was there, I only got to see the white lips, uh, the Sturotipus. Uh, what else did we find? The tabas, the acutum, the uh, the snapping turtles, and uh, I, I'm leaving one out, but it, probably, it was, probably uh, the Mesoamerican slider. Yeah, yeah, and the trachomies, which are yeah. fascinating. But I've got some unfinished business, I guess, because <laughs> they were uh, – I, I for those who don't know, I guess, I had an infection on my leg there that that kind of thing just happens when you're going around in the, in the jungle. But I, I was kind of – I ignored it for too long, but uh, there's still some stuff, cool stuff to see. I mean, it, it, to give people an idea, right, rhinoclemmies – uh, scorpion mud turtles, a bunch of different things that, yeah. that you can see here, and there some interesting. Go ahead, yeah, Mike. go ahead. I said we're already working on two two manuscripts from all of our findings that we'll have out by the by the end of the year. I hope. Yeah, that's exciting stuff. So for for listeners, stay tuned because there's some cool things happening there. Um, so I, yeah, that I mean it. The Belize trip is really cool. Is that something that's going to be open to? You said it's kind of open to anyone, but is that something volunteers can get in on, or or people that are interested? Or yeah, it really is open to anyone who who wants to come down and um, can handle. You know, it, it's it's a ten day trip. Uh, it is not for the faint of heart. Uh, we we actually were hiking ten to twelve miles a day uh, this past, this past trip, uh, some of us came back with over 150 miles hiked in that 10 days. So it's, it's, it's rough. Uh, it's not, it's not your typical, uh, stuff that we do here in the U S for swimming. Um, most of the, most of the turtle captures come from trapping. So you're lugging traps around bait around through the rainforest, checking them daily, twice a day at times. Um, but yeah, it, it's open to anyone who wants to experience it. Um, uh, it's uh the the the, the fees pre is is uh um for be free you get three meals a day uh lodging so it's a pretty pretty fair setup um the the flight to be to belize is is usually uh an affordable flight i mean i spend more going back up to pennsylvania from houston typically right yeah i mean it's it's a great experience but like you said not for not you you should expect to be pretty immersed in the jungle the whole time but if it, it's it's definitely a good experience if that's what you're interested in 
V three um, is off the grid. It's all solar powered. So um, once you're there, uh, yeah, it's uh, you're out in the middle of nowhere. I I'd have to say too, one of the most interesting things for me there was the trachomies, like the like you mentioned, the one that I forgot to mention. I mean, they're just so different than in the United States. It's it's almost like they're pseudomies. I mean, they're, they're <laughs> huge. Yeah, and and the river system is kind of all rock. It's just kind of a foreign habitat. That was really interesting to snorkel in there. And yeah, did you go for a, when you were there? Did you night dive that? Yeah. Um, so we we night dive the first year. Um, didn't, didn't really come up with much. We got one star typhus during during the night. Um, Andy Weber caught that. Um, this past year, again, not too much found. Uh, I just think that that's, that's, that stretch of river, as you mentioned, it's limestone granite bottomed. There isn't a lot of aquatic vegetation there. So the trachomies are really sequestered to certain parts of it. So they're, they're on the south side of the beef free boundary along uh, the one bank that has a lot of that structure and a lot of the vegetation in that part of the river. Well, yeah, we're up to, I think, 40, 45 or so just in that stretch. So there is a fair amount of turtles using that small area. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it, they, they're pseudomy size and, and I guess vegetarian likely as well. But yeah, in terms of their abundance, it's nowhere near. They're, they're actually yeah. tough to find. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's you're rooting around in that structure. The, there's a, the underground, the cut banks and uh, there's falling down trees. They're all, they're in there. But not to the not to the degree of what you're used to seeing with the Sudamis or even the trachomies at like uh, Kamal Springs. Right. And I get yeah. So mentioning this the Sudamis, we can maybe jump back to the U.S. and some of the Florida stuff and and sort of like you said, you've worked in I think nine different sites in Florida, but the the sort of heterogeneity between all those sites is actually really fascinating. I, a lot of people might think, oh, it's a spring system. Florida with turtles, they must all be the same, but it's unique. Um, it and I maybe the first, like, I might have the timelines wrong here, but I think that Volusia Blue Spring was the first big population analysis that, yeah, that now, yeah, before that was just single species like Calydra and Apollonia. But the uh, first right? assemblage, uh, yeah, the Blue Spring was the first assemblage paper. Okay, yeah, and it, that the situation there, I seem to recall, was it seemed a bit. Uh, it seemed like some of the the population growth rates were kind of low. What what are some of the stresses at that site? That so that site for for people who haven't seen it, it's actually one of the more visited uh, parks in all of Florida, simply because it's the largest manatee refuge on the east side of Florida. Uh, they get over 400, 450 manatees, the refuge there during the winter now. Um, so during that time period, the, the manatees denude the entire site. There's no aquatic vegetation on the bottom. Um, so having that many manatees there, you kind of reached the carrying capacity for the spring, but it really is one of the only large thermally, you know, stable uh, environments on, on the St. John's River for these manatees to overwinter in. Manatees can't thermoregulate very well in the winter. The St. John's River gets cold. They have a lot of manatee die-offs. So the manatees flood into Blue Spring to, to stay warm. I think the last I saw the, the, the manatee population that was using Blue Spring was having an 11% recruitment 
which is a pretty high recruitment um, year after year for a, man a mammal that size for a spring system that's already tapped, that's already has carrying capacity. So what we're seeing there is the, the food base is kind of largely gone. Um, we've seen the park try to replant eelgrass over the years. Doesn't stick. The manatees crash through the gate, the the the, the, pl the food plots, and they eat the eelgrass. Uh, without aquatic vegetation, you lose your macro vertebrate population. So the snail populations and things like that, I think, have definitely taken a hit over the years. Um, so what we're seeing population-wise is the stenotherous minor population there's had some health issues, had has, has some um, population issues. The Sudemis populations there are transient. Um, there's a small resident population of Sudemis nelsoni there, the Florida red belly cooter. We only have like 70 of them marked there. They're largely resident. They might go in and out of the St. John's River. Um, it's a very open system. The, the spring dumps right into the St. John's, a huge river uh, opening to the spring. So the, the turtles might go back and forth. We have about 400 Sudemis peninsularis marked there, and they are extremely transient. We'll go five, ten years not seeing a Sudemis recapture at Blue Springs because it is such an open system. So they, they don't need Volusia Blue Spring to, to persist. They just go into Volusia Blue, Blue Spring for basking habitat or to thermoregulate real quick in warmer water, and then they'll go back out to the river. Right. That's why your recaptures seem, it seems like throughout most of the papers, most recaptures are pretty time dependent. It's yeah. like some sort of seasonality or just even individual response to when certain turtles are, are leaving. Oh, absolutely. Uh, especially with the, the sites that are uh, on a big river. So the Swami River, St. John's River, those rivers, the temperature plummets pretty quickly during the, the Florida winter. Wakawa Springs and Kelly's Park, I think, are the one exception that we sample because they actually are very um sequestered sites that actually kind of flow into large lagoon areas that kind of maintain the temperature their their river system is a smaller river system that takes about 11 miles to get to the saint john's so it's more of a it's an open system a very large system but i think it's more thermally uh, uh stable than other smaller springs that dump into river systems right you mentioned the the Nelson I and Peninsularis too there. I, 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 I feel like I'm someone that's kind of interested, I guess, in community turtle communities and assemblage specifically for species that have similar sort of habitat requirements, how they coexist. And, and I think about it in light of sliders and other turtles where they're not native. Cause I think we jump to the conclusion it's bad in all situations, but when you've got a yeah. single species where I've looked with pond turtles, it's hard to prove. But, but so you have a system where you have multiple species cohabitating, essentially syntopic, just literally in the same sort of microhabitat that seem to do okay with each other. And you've sort of analyzed that with the, the logger and musk turtles, common musk turtles, and the, the cooters all in these areas. Is there any pattern to sort of just sheer numbers you're seeing with different with those similar species at different sites, or is it kind of just so they both okay? Every other site other than Wakawa Springs, we see we see populations favor one or the other. Uh, at Wakawa Springs, again, it's, it's such a, an odd, unique setup for a springhead. Uh, most springheads are very short. And they, they dump right into a major river. Wakawa Springs dumps into a football field-sized lagoon. So And then it goes into a, a run system that 
travels 11 miles until it hits the St. John's. So it's a, a lot different uh, habitat type. So we're, we actually see both populations uh, for Sudemis and both populations of Stenothrus actually do fairly well because there's microhabitat differences. So in the lagoon at Wakawa Springs State Park, we primarily catch Peninsularis. In the, the run system that we survey, we primarily catch Nelsonide. They're more of a flowing water, uh, prefer, they prefer flowing water. Same thing with uh, the loggerhead musk and the common musk. Loggerhead musk, we find more of them in run systems, more flowing water, uh, a lot more structured habitat with falling down trees and cut banks and things like that, where we find more of the odoratus in the lagoon. So they are, there is heart habitat partitioning at Wakawa Springs. That, that's why I think we have such abundant and healthy populations of all four species. That's really interesting. So at some of those other sites, yeah, like you said, there seems to be a predominance of one species versus the other. But so you, you do sort of have microhabitat differences in explaining that. That That's really an interesting thing. And, and thinking about that in terms of sort of invasive species wise, it's tough to say how that kind of applies. But how you, you look at it at the surface, it looks similar, but then you really kind of, I mean, just going out there and it's, it, it's sort of a demonstrates a benefit to snorkeling as opposed to trapping too. Absolutely. It's trapping, right. You could make those correlations, but you're not going to see it. Species dependent too, because with Sudemis, you can't travel. Uh, in 23 years of, of researching now four species of them, we've by luck probably caught 50 of the several thousand that we've caught off a trap. Uh, we don't, I don't know of a bait that actually drives them to a trap. I think it's just happenstance that they end up in a trap. Yeah. So that there's definitely, it's fun to go through all the accounts from and, and Pritchard where they'd go to the Springs and snorkel some of the early things. And then to actually go do it is, is, is cool to sort of follow in in the footsteps there i guess is pretty Absolutely. fun so one of the sites too because there's a lot of different sites i mean we've talked about wakaiwa a bit and and some of the other sites on santa fe and but one the, one of the ones i've not actually been to yet is the wiki watchy one and it seems like that had a really kind of high diversity of species it at, does at we have of every site i mean is there anything that sort of explains why that is or is that kind of just all things coming together I think, it's, I think it's right at the species range limit for most of everything that is in florida for either north to south so where it's meeting um you have a chance of finding everything um county wise um it, you know if you look at the range maps for certain species uh it's right there the border for their range is is hernando county where wikiwachi is and uh, wikiwachi is a cell it is a um uh, eight mile river. So the spring dumps into its own river that goes out to the Gulf. So it's, again, it's kind of its own system. Um, it is probably the, the cleanest water, clearest water I've ever snorkeled in my life. Uh, it is the second strongest single boil, uh, spring in the state of Florida, uh, only to Wakulla Springs. I think it's a uh, 240 million gallons a day, which, uh, once you get into the Uikiwachi River, it's really hard to swim backwards. It's kind of like Itchituckney in that way. Itchituckney is a little different because there's like eight springs that feed it, where this is just one boil. Uh, it's also very has a very unique history. Uh, it actually is the home of the Mermaid Show. 
Uh, mermaids are real. <laughs> Go to Wikiwachi. It's, uh, it's quite entertaining. Uh, it was developed in the 50s. This guy bought this this track of land with Wikiwachi on there, and he taught uh, – He I think he was an old uh, U.S. Uh, Navy SEAL dive teacher who taught uh, local women how their breath like Navy SEALs and to perform an underwater show because there's an underwater aquifer at the springhead. And when you go there to swim and snorkel for the turtles, you're you, we have access to the, the the mermaid amphitheater. So you're swimming in with all the apparatuses they have put down there over the last 60 years. They have air pipes that the mermaids go down and take breaths from. It, it, it's, it looks like Atlantis underwater. It's, it's really weird. Very, very human impacted, um, but very beautiful in, in, in many aspects because of how clear the water is and, and the ecosystem outside of the mermaid show area. Uh, Turtle-wise, the, the species are everywhere uh, across that site. Um, we have every species that we work with and all the other parks combined at Wikiwachi. Uh, all three Sudemi species occur there, Consina, Peninsularis, Nelson I. Um, I think it's also due to microhabitat structure where Wikiwachi also is another big lagoon system that they actually made into a water park. So there's water slides, there's a beach there. But uh, the Peninsularis hang out in the lagoon and Nelson I and Consina hang out in the river. And yeah, uh, I think the other species that we find are just based off of site habitat. So you have adjacent wetland habitat that we found Kinosturm bowerai there occasionally. They they come into the into the spring, I think during floods. Uh, chicken turtles are the same. There's some ponds and wetlands that are, that are adjacent to Wikiwachi that during floods times the chicken turtles find themselves in clean water, nice crystal clear water. They're not usually found in. So that that site has got to be close with uh, Ichitakni in terms of diversity. Are they they're pretty similar? Yeah, I think the Ichitakni were up to nine species. It must be ten, though. I, I think because yeah. we did find a chicken turtle there. Okay, so. then yeah, if we're yeah, then I think they're species by species. They're they're equal. Right. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that's just incredible. That kind of point diversity in in a, I don't know how long exactly it is, but only a few miles you're finding more than certain states. I mean, my, the the state that I'm from, it, that's about three times as many turtles as we have in that one 137,000 square mile section of land you have. about A mile and a half of the Wikiwachi river too. Eight miles. We only go down about a mile and a half. Right, so that that's just a so Florida what's turtle us on that site. We started that site probably, probably know, seven years ago now. What sold us on it was the part the the parks department uh, were intrigued about us adding that park to our studies, and the the park biologists at the time mentioned that they see ornate diamondback terrapins come in, and, huh. and we have a chance of snorkeling for diamondback terrapins. Yeah, we'll do it. We haven't found them right. yet. But. So, that, but that's not probably close to the coast enough. Are there, there's an, there's actual documentation of that, or no, 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 no. They, they are in the county on the board on the the Gulf. So the river itself is only eight miles. So functionally, it's possible we actually see saltwater species of fish come into the spring. So it's yeah. definitely eight miles isn't much for a turtle to travel. We know uh, Sudamis. We have Sudamis traveling sixty miles plus. 
between sites. Right, and then the one that was something like 260 kilometers from Ichita. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, it's incredible. Yeah, it's it not just uh, the cooters. Uh, we see it with Nelson I and Peninsularis. Tab Tabitha Hoopman did her uh, master's at Wakaiwa, and she was seeing uh, four to five mile movements f frequently between you know a week. And her lo her longest was an eleven mile trip by a Sedemis Peninsularis. She thought she lost the turtle, like she that the transmitter fell off or died, and then uh, she just continued going out towards the St. John's River, and she she found it about two miles from the river. Wow, that's uh, yeah, that that they are incredibly mobile. It's really an interesting thing. the uh, The other thing too that's interesting about the spring systems in general is they're sort of thermally, uh, I guess, inert. They're not really changing much, so you get some interesting growth dynamics and you've looked at that a bit too. One thing that stood, I mean, the growth rates are pretty ridiculous, but then you looked at two different species, Peninsularis and Nelson I, and it seemed like there were differences in the rates. Why, why do you think that is? Is that, I think it's, uh, and we're, we're actually uh, um, working on a very big growth paper now on all four species of Sudemis that we work with. And uh, I think it's just how each species deals with its preferred microhabitat and the food available. So at Okawa Springs, uh, the one growth paper we put out was looking at um, immature individual uh, growth between like the first capture year to the next. Uh, it could have been less than a year. It could have just been a little over a year. We had some turtles that were growing. They were doubling their size in basically a year's time. And I think that had, uh, for that particular study site, had a lot to do with the invasive species that was dominating the site at the time, hydrilla. Uh, we found that both species preyed upon hydrilla in abundance, that we would find the both cooter species eating the plant all over Wakawa Springs. And if you dig into the literature, uh, Dr. Karen Bjorndahl has done a lot of dietary analysis on the, um, on the dietary content of hydrilla. It's actually very protein dense. So it's actually a very good food source. Right. And and it seems like maybe the that was more sequestered in the 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 uh I guess more lentic I guess the spring run, yeah. not the run itself. That was more in the the um I guess the boil up from the, the aquifer, and that's where your peninsularis were versus your Nelson I were not. We saw the Nelson I in the lagoon during that time. So the Nelson and I would come in to the lagoon more than they do now, and they would they would partake that invasive species. And I think uh, Jerry saw is seeing the same thing with Consina, or he did at his Blue Spring. So there are three different Blue Springs in Florida. There's Volusia Blue, Lafayette Blue, and uh, oh, I can't think of the third one offhand. Gilchrist, right? Gilchrist Blue. That's Jerry's site. Uh, so Gilchrist Blue had a a, a um, hydrilla explosion as well. And he saw an aggregation of Swanee cooters come in to gorge themselves on hydrilla. And once the hydrilla was gone, he hasn't seen that come back. Right. So they sort of track that resource. But it was, so you said the Nelson and I came in for it, but do you think they were growing slower because they were getting out competed for it? Or what? Or why was, why did you see different? Different. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, I, I don't know why that is yet. Uh, we are currently working on actual growth curves and age curves for all four species on this paper that we're, we're uh, working with NOAA. So we have a, 
a sea turtle biologist out of NOAA that we're working with and a, a um, professor out of UF who specializes in shark growth. And uh, they're, they're doing a deep dive into 20 plus years of data we have for pseudomies across all of our study sites, developing actual growth curves for all four species and trying to figure out based off of study site uh, each study site has its own story and, and they're, they're different, you know, invasive species wise, human usage wise, uh, nitrate, nitrogen loading wise, flow wise. So there's a lot of things that go into why certain species might be growing faster in one study site versus another, because there's so many different human influenced impacts that can be altering that growth or functioning or, or aiding into that growth, like with Kyla or Kamal Springs with the Texana. Uh, you have the highest nitrogen loading we have across all of our studies is at Kamal Springs. Hmm. And yeah, if you right. look at the spring, the habitat at Kamal is, is dominated by eelgrass. So much so that it's hard to snorkel in. The eelgrass is almost all the way up to the surface, and it could be six to seven feet deep at that part of the lake. And the eelgrass is all the way to the surface. Right. So it's looking kind of how that affects the different systems. Yeah. I mean, for the, the growth rate, growth at age models, and it sounds a lot more, um, it sounds a lot more innocent than it is. <laughs> it's, it's definitely a lot of, a lot of work to be done. So looking at the, the complex growth models that Zach, Dr. Sliders is putting together from all his stuff that he's done with goblin sharks and other shark species, uh, it's very complicated math, very complicated work to go through. And you need you, you need these long-term data sets to really do that. You need the, the succession of mark and recapture data for, for somebody to actually develop these models. Right, right. It's a good, uh, I don't know, it, it's something that was kind of fun. I, I think in my 12th grade class, uh, calculus class talking about like uh in applications and in, in the real world it seems like that's sort of tough but that was something i was like yeah this actually is a real world sort of application yeah. for these things <laughs> but uh, yeah it's it's cool it's definitely cool work exciting to see that um so maybe we can get to some of the stuff that's just more adventure wise and less data yeah. Uh, I'm curious. This one I'm curious about is what's your favorite system to, to survey? If you've got a, a favorite. <laughs> oh, it's hard. Um, I think that Wakawa Springs always will be kind of a home to me because that's really where my career took off. Um, it is going on 23 years and I've only missed samples there due to COVID. I was, I went 20 straight years, not missing a sample at Wakawa Springs state park until 2019, uh, 2020. So that one holds a special place in my, um, but I think the, the study site really now focusing on more than anything, and it could just because it's so close to me is the Buffalo Bayou alligator snapping turtle project. I get, I can trap for alligator right, snapping yeah. turtles 45 minutes from my house. So it's very easy for me to, to dedicate time to because it's so local and the data we're getting out of that small study site, it's incredible. Uh, we're up to 126 marked alligator snapping turtles in basically 24 miles of bayou. We, we have found them now in four other bayous across the Houston area. So it's just a really unique setting, uh, so urbanized and yet so um, utilized by the species. And you never would have thought going in that you would find a, a reproductive, very viable population of the species in such an urban environment. 
And you, you have you've marked them or, or they've been documented almost up to the border with Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, so we also helped the University of Houston do their statewide set assessment. And uh, we have found through that study, we have found that there are a lot more areas than what they previously were thought. And there's also other studies. Uh, Stephen F. Austin has done a statewide assessment as well, going back and looking at um, study sites that uh, the Rudolph uh, group, uh, Texas A&M, looked at back in 2001, I believe. And they were finding them in other study sites there. So the species in general looks like it's doing fairly well in Texas. Um, the reason why it's up for potential listing now for the federal you know, for, for federal listing of U.S. Fish and Wildlife is due to um, Louisiana's take, really. Um, Louisiana, it, it unfortunately, still has, I, I think, regulations where you're allowed one per person per day. And uh, there's been poaching cases where uh, people from Louisiana have come over to Texas and poached Texas alligator snapping turtles. I'm sure it's the same for Mississippi and Arkansas. And um, they're, they're just uh, certain states, I think, that population-wise, uh, certain areas, they, they're not doing as well as they, they are in Texas. And in Texas, it might just be that a lot of uh, the state is 96% private. So it's really hard to get access to places. So in, in some ways that protects things in some ways it doesn't, but in some ways uh, for, for alligator snapping turtles, it might actually serve as a protection. There were, so there was something uh, too, that I noticed going through some of the research too, is there recent publication about freshwater muscle diversity there. And that might be contributing because it seems like some of the snappers there for Western alligator snappers get pretty massive heads. Is that, are you, have you done any dietary analyses with them? We have not. And uh, it's another, uh, for, for a study like that, I would love to. And my big push this year at TSA was that I, I have, we have so many ideas for side projects to do where I would need a, a grad student to take on. And that would be a great one to do just to see what they're preying upon. Um, we know Buffalo Bayou has a diverse and abundant fish population. But in, in Lake Houston, the paper that you mentioned with our mussel uh, study, we found 15 species of mussel in Lake Houston. And a lot of people thought, again, that Lake Houston being a man-made reservoir had poor water quality. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, just because it is a very brown water system, uh, it has a very abundant and diverse mussel um, community. And if you have a diverse and abundant mussel community, it kind of sets the stage for having other things. It's a food base right sort of an indicator i know if 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 jack were here now he would be deep down rabbit holes with questions about these he's always texting me about the alligator snapping turtles are some of his his favorite i mean it, they're incredible turtles but yeah he was for for everyone out there he's coming back from the galapagos now so he couldn't Lucky. join us today, was, he, was, was he with dr burke but, Yes. Yes. And uh, something kind of funny, actually, that that happened a few days ago was in one of my I, I'm taking a physiological ecology class, which is it's kind of funny because I, I, I didn't realize this, but I guess it's all seniors. So I'm I guess I'm I'm the only freshman there. And it was <laughs> kind of funny. It's like the, one of the first class I went in, I was like, am I supposed to know all this already? But I guess that it was not. But regardless, the teacher or the professor, I, I guess we're in college now, but the professor, um, he put up a slide. One of the first slides was a, 
this is really funny. I should have mentioned this earlier, but he put up a slide as an introduction to the course and his work. And it was on hammer Gregorings in yellow belly sliders. He was using it as an example of what physiological ecology was. This was a paper I read way back when I was doing, That's going awesome. through the all snappers. But <laughs> the funniest part about it was the, the person that he did the work with 10 years back was someone that's in the Galapagos with Jack right now. So it was just kind of a funny kind of, and, and I didn't even know until he texted me. Yeah. So it was kind of a funny thing, but yeah, in, in, uh, he, he, he texted me right before this, he was trying to make it, but it just wasn't really not going to work. But I think the coming back from the Galapagos is actually, it's kind of depressing, but having been there for, Two weeks yeah. is definitely uh, worth yeah, missing. Out imagine. That, that's a special trip. I've always wanted to join Dr. Burke's trip there. Right. I mean, it, it seems like something that people can get involved with. Yeah, I, I think he tries to do it yearly. It's just a uh, time and cost, really. It, it's a it's a heavy. It's, I think it's a heavy cost to get down there, but someday. Yeah, and the the snapping turtles too in in Buffalo Bayou are pretty. I seem to recall you mentioning the people have a lot of sort of pride in the turtles there. So it's not really, I mean, the people are out to protect them. It, it is. It's a, it's a unique situation where um, Texas Parks and Wildlife kind of thought that they were extirpated from Harris County uh, before 2016. They just thought maybe there were, there were some old individuals in Buffalo Valley. There wasn't a functional population. And now six years later, there's definitely a large functional population and talking to people that we have to get access through, because a lot of the bayou is surrounded by very expensive residents, uh, HOAs, things like that. They know that the turtles are there. They've seen them over the years. Uh, it's just that they had not been documented correctly at, at that point. So people do de definitely take pride in the turtle. They take pride in the abundant uh, alligator gar population that's in the bayou. They take pride that the bayou still functions as a very high-quality habitat in the midst of urban sprawl in the fourth-largest city in the country. That's that's definitely good for for the Macroquiles. Not the case in a lot of other spots. So yeah, kind of a breath of fresh air. But pretty in interesting that it was undocumented for so long in terms of that that range. And it some of the. So are they moving a lot in there? I mean, that, that was something I – you found them in, in in some weird situations after floods, and it seems like they make their way around, right? It's really – yeah. It, the movement study that we did um, – so kind of preface it. During Hurricane Harvey, when Hurricane Harvey flooded the whole region, or Houston region, a lot of people I, I don't think still kind of have a grasp of how much. There are areas in Houston that got 60 inches of rain in four days. So uh, there are areas that were under eight to 10 plus feet of water that never see that. So most of downtown was. Um, Buffalo Bayou was at the highest uh, flow rate it's ever seen uh, for, for, for being uh, recorded. Its median flow is at 200 cubic feet per second. I think during Hurricane Harvey, it had reached about 30,000 cubic feet per second, which is uh, unreal. So you imagine that it's a, kind of a torrent flood just, uh, at that stage. We had marked uh, about 30 turtles before Hurricane Harvey. And after Hurricane Harvey, after all the floodwaters receded, we got a call from the Houston SBCA saying that they had an alligator snapping turtle that was found walking Memorial Drive, which is a road that parallels Buffalo Bayou. There literally could be 500 feet separating the road to the bayou. 
Um, so the Houston PD picked that turtle up and gave it to the SPCA, who called Texas Parks and Wildlife, who got us out there to look at it. Well, you're out there looking at the turtle. It was one of our marked animals. So we knew where we caught that turtle pre-Hurricane Harvey. We caught that turtle in February of, of uh, I think it was 2017. Um, we know the point because we take GPS points of where we catch them. And we know where the Houston Parks, uh, Houston uh, Police Department picked it up. And it moved all of about 1,300 feet. So Hurricane Harvey did not move that turtle. He moved it. He moved himself. So it kind of got us into wanting to do an actual tracking study. If the largest flood in Texas history and one of the largest floods in, in, in U.S. history did not move that turtle, we kind of wanted to know what those turtles did uh, you know, on a yearly basis. So we got a couple of volunteers to do uh, tracking every week. And we uh, put telemetry devices on 10 alligator snapping turtles, five at each site. And the sites were separated by about five river miles. And through the year and a half that we tracked them, they never met. We never had turtles that actually traveled the five miles to meet each other. Our, our largest movement during that year and a half was just about 4.6 miles. It just was the other direction from the other um, transmitted turtles. But after that study stopped, we, and we published that one like two years ago, after that study stopped, we had a brand new study site at the very western end uh, edge of Buffalo Bayou that we surveyed. So from basically our core habitats downtown to this new site was about 22 river miles. We caught a marked turtle at that new site that we had not seen for about 15 months. It was a 96-pound individual. He moved 22 river miles from one site to the next within 15 months upstream. And wow. simply, I honestly think going through the literature and we published the note on that movement, um, Peter Pritchard, Dr. Pritchard mentioned in his, his alligator snapping turtle book that he believes that certain individuals of Macrochilles are what he labeled habitual stream wanderers. And I can't think of any other reason why this large male would have moved other than he was looking for meat and looking for habitat across the reach. He moved from an area that had abundant females and a, and a lot larger individuals. Uh, they're, they're, at first, I thought he was moving to avoid large alligator snapping turtles. But we have large alligator snapping turtles across Buffalo Bayou, of which he's won. 96 pounds is still pretty big. You know, We still have some that are 130, boarding 140 pound range. But he never had shown any damage. So I just think he was just habitually moving, finding a, a, a mate to mate with and continuing on. You know, propagating his genes across the stream reach. It's an interesting adaptation, too, to think about. I mean, the idea of, like, carrying capacity in the system for large turtles, they can only be so many of them before you run out of space. But if there's some individuals that just have a propensity to move like that, it actually sort of distributes the need for space over a wider range. So maybe there's Absolutely. some advantage to that for certain turtles. Oh, especially for a microhabitat specialist like uh, Macrochilles, where you have large males will defend a small area that is their microhabitat that has cut banks or or large root bulbs and, and structure. Um, if you, there's only a limited amount of that, that I, I would imagine a, a smaller male will leave that area to try to find his own. It's just a, a system that there's so many questions, and we're in our sixth year of a planned tenure, and we have no intention of stopping at ten years. We want we want to continue growing us this special site. 
Right. That's it's 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 pretty incredible how many different projects you've got going on, but they're all sustainable because of kind of the dynamic of the study. It's it's a cool thing. Yeah, and it's it's kind of allowed me to focus elsewhere, like Belize and, and, and Macroquiles, because in Florida, due to COVID, I couldn't get out there to to manage the study sites. So we kind of di- divided it up to uh, Tabitha Hoopman, who's been a long-term uh, volunteer of ours, going on 16, 17 years of volunteering. She manages now the, the Northern Springs, and Wayne Osborne, who's been uh, 10, 11 years now with us, is managing the Southern group of springs. It allows me to know that the data is going to be collected great. We have fantastic groups coming into helping them. They can help really manage Florida when I can't be there all the time. And uh, I can focus elsewhere. Right. That's uh, exciting stuff. So we're coming up on time here, but I guess that's a great segue into, well, I've got one more question too, and then we can get into maybe the future plans. But I'm curious, out of all the different, adventures you've been on what's the one moment or, or observation that stood out the most i'm gonna go with you okay that works so dr day ligon and, and denise thompson his wife came down in 20 2017 i think and to, to see buffalo bayou uh just to see how unique and odd it was and we ended up catching 19 alligator snapping turtles that weekend with them and we caught our biggest El Gigante was 132 pounds at the time. Um, and I just remember Day saying it was the largest he's seen. And it, to, still to this day, um, shell size wise, it's the largest alligator snapping. It's the largest turtle I've ever caught in my career. And it's just kind of a special moment seeing that turtle pulling up the trap with him in it. He had three females and a juvenile and with him. That trap weighed over 300 pounds. It was just a, a really cool uh unique day I, I hope to duplicate at some point try to get day and denise to come back down and bring their luck with them um and then the another that was just awe-inspiring and a really fun trip was this past be free trip uh when luke pearson and and um uh, and i we, we were checking traps with tom pop um who you met uh and we pull up a trap and it had a claudius and gust and gustatus in it and that was a, a life lister for me, uh, seeing the narrow bridge musk turtle uh, at all and then finding as many as we did. It was just a really cool experience uh, to add that species to, to the life list and uh, hopefully uh, to set the stage to find many more of them. Right. That was something I, I was looking forward to as well and just going to the habitat there and walking in. And then I, Jonathan was the first person – what, I was kind of standing back, handing people bait, and Jonathan walked out off of this little log, and and he just tapped me, and I saw one. It was just like, I mean, it, it was pretty surreal to see something that I've seen in pet stores and and people yeah. that have in captivity, but to actually see it where it's supposed to be was something pretty spectacular. It was a cool experience, but I can't imagine, yeah, that your situation was really a, a unique one there. So uh, that must have been really cool. So just it kind was. of the yeah, that's uh, cool stuff. I, just, so, I remember Tom Pop looking yeah. over at Luke and I. He's like, "I can die happy now." <laughs> yeah, no, he's yeah, he was. Uh, I mean, he he's. I think we're hopefully going to have. I don't know if Tom will come on, but I I talked to Heather about it. I think we'll try to get them on. Get, the, get uh, yeah, if you get Heather, Jacob, and Tom on. That would be a great talk. 
Yeah, he, he's Hell's a turbo Hell's magnet. They, like they, they just come to, they come out for him. I mean, he was walking around barefoot in the jungle at night. It's just he's yep. uh, just knows that place better than than anyone else. Yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was pretty incredible. But um, I so I guess maybe just to wrap this part up is for future plans. Like you said, you've got a bit more time now. So is that Belize thing kind of the, the main priority now, or do you got to? Yeah, yeah, Belize is definitely going to be the main priority, I think, for the next eight years to really get that program going and and develop some uh, demography uh, data sets for the white lip mud turtle, the Basco uh, mud, um, whatever else we can get in abundance there to, to really try to get some more of that, that missing data, especially for that part of the range for them. Uh, Continuing with the macro Achilles work in Buffalo Bayou, hitting that 10-year benchmark is really special to me. I really want to do that and see just how many we can get marked in Buffalo Bayou and then expanding out into the, the greater Houston area with the other bayous. We know there's a really unique population of macro Achilles in Little, uh, Little Cypress Spring, which is another, um, spring, uh, another bayou system that is north of Buffalo that has no direct connection to Buffalo. So the, the turtles that would be in Little Cypress would not have any chance of being in Buffalo. And we see juveniles and females there. So it's really interesting dynamic of where are the big males at in that system. So we had a lot more trapping to do there. And then uh, really trying to, to help other uh, researchers and collaborate uh, elsewhere. Uh, really have a dream project that we're working on in Columbia to, to kick off with Natalia, um, who is just an amazing geneticist and works in Columbia to hopefully get something started there for the next decade. Yeah, that, that, that'll be exciting stuff. So it will no longer just be North America. You'll think of a new name. Uh, that's a, it's an unwieldy acronym anyways. Right. It is a bit of a mouthful. NAFTURG is, is, is a good sort of abbreviation. It used well, to be. I, so yeah. What, what did it used to be? Central Florida Freshwater Turtle Research Group. Sifterg. Sifterg. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, similar still, I guess. But yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, if you add the South America part, it just makes it longer. It's North yeah, and South figure out a new name. American <laughs> Turtle Research Group, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay, that I think that that's good in terms of the, the main section here. We also like to do, uh, as long as you're not crunched for time, a little bit of the trivia. I normally contact beforehand so you can think of questions, but I forgot. Uh, but I don't know if you've got a few questions just on your mind that you can hit Ken and I with. Uh, no, we'd like to do that. Just obscure stuff, you know, it, it just wild things that are useless. Like Carl put it, it's uh, – useless in any other situation except for the end of the of a podcast it's it becomes useful knowledge hmm so it could be from anything it yeah well turtle wise turtle, turtle trivia yeah we we like to we've i think we've gone about 29 episodes and asked everyone so we've gotten some crazy stuff i'm we've been stumped a few times but it's been, although we're kind of short on team members, so we might not have as, as good a lot. <laughs> okay. But yeah, just um, 
Obscure turtle facts, I guess. Obscure turtle facts. Okay. Um, this is just a, a one that you probably wouldn't know just because I got to actually see it and experience it. How large do you think Apollonia Ferox can get? So I, I think that the record of the 2015 Florida book was 96 pounds, 29 inches. That was, it, I, don't know offhand uh, on the actual measure, uh, the weight, but yeah, you're, you, uh, that would be the individual that's housed at the U, the UF Museum. Dr. Kenny Crisco actually got showed it to me uh, about ten years ago. It's housed in basically a uh, coffin-sized pullout down in the in the UF uh, museum basement. It's the size of a sea turtle. It's incredible. That, do you have any photos of that? Or don't I wish. Yeah, I would love if, you, if you contact Dr. Crisco, he'd probably give you a uh, a tour of the museum. The UF Museum is amazing. I dropped off a, a false map turtle that we caught at Volusia Blue Spring. I dropped it off to him. <laughs> he just gave, he gave me a tour. I got to see students uh, articulate the Burmese python skeleton. Kind of cool. That's that's really interesting. There's always something we I've stopped there once for about thirty minutes before a flight out. So I've been for a, a second, but not very long. But, uh, well, yeah, I'll have to. I'm close now. I can yeah. make the it's drive. It's definitely worth the trip down to UF to, to see it. Uh, just, and just a, a, another recent size uh, trivia question that I think is really cool, just was found this past year. A lot of people don't know it. Uh, what is the now corroborated largest Macrochile size? Oh, yeah, I, I do know this one. I, well, so 211 pounds, I think 34 inches SCL. Yeah. Yep. Right, that's okay. right. Uh, just uh, from Rosenbaum at all. Yeah, it's just incredible yeah. to even contemplate seeing one that big because the biggest I've seen is 140 pounds, and seeing one that's that much larger, especially where it came from, too. I mean, it's sort of, I, I don't know, I mean, I guess it's sort of expected the western seem to get very. Yeah, they, they definitely get bigger than the Swannies. It's just uh, seeing one above 200 pounds hasn't been seen in decades. Uh, we had a, we had two large ones that were confiscated in a poaching uh, incident in Texas uh, about six years ago now. There were, I think, 172 and 160-pound individuals. I mean, that's bigger than anything wild I've ever caught. That's bigger than anything Luke Pearson's caught. So it's just uh, there are giants still alive out there. <laughs> Which is nice to see and hear. I mean, that 211 pound alligator snapping turtle has to be ancient. Right, right. The age of that animal has been. I'm curious if there's more where they were trapping that. To just they, they, they did find another large one. I think it was in the 150 plus range. So it would be a site that warrants long term analysis in my mind, without a doubt. Right, right. Jeremy uh, Geiger's poster too at TSA was interesting. For the White Springs turtle, I mean, it's not far off the SCL measurement, but when you actually do the the regression for it, it's it it's in that hundred and fifty to one. I think what one fifty to one ninety range. I think was his intervals. So. Yeah, I believe so. And, and for Swannies, I mean, they haven't seen anything that large in in the current studies with uh, Angie and Travis Thomas. Uh, I think their biggest is the Judge, and I think what one hundred thirty two pounds or so. Right, right. From the upper, I think that was in the upper sections. Yeah. Which is sort of strange considering that it's, I think it's more tan, it's more black water up there. It's kind of not as productive. 
but they seem to get bigger. Yeah, that is an odd observation. Yeah, well, okay, that's well, that's those are good trivia questions. It's just like the size stuff if it's recent. It's just uh, yeah, it's interesting uh, because there are certain species that are considered well studied, and yet we're still finding new things about them, and or corroborating long term thoughts about them. Where we always thought that Macrochilles timoniki could get two hundred pounds plus, but there wasn't any definitive actual museum records that showed it until now. And with the abalone, right. I. It's such a perceived common species. No one works with it. Uh, we published the first population paper back in 2015, I think. And we only had 52 animals marked at that time. So uh, it's just a species I think that warrants attention. Um, it's a very, you know, it's the largest soft shell in the United States. It's a very interesting species to work with. They can kind of live up to their Latin name. It's probably why another reason why people don't play with it. Right. I, well, I've I've got a a meeting tomorrow here at Georgia to talk about something soft shell related. I'm not gonna, I mean, in terms of like on the air, I'm not gonna mention it, but but something kind of exciting that I, I might try to undertake, but Very related cool. to soft shells, so it, it could be kind of an interesting thing. But yeah, no, I mean, the, just as a group, the trinechids are so. It seems like there's been work done on them, but for how interesting they are, it's not. There's kind of a paucity of, of work. A positive of uh, like demographic analysis because they're so you can't mark them very easily uh, until recently you know our, our tattoo method it, it works fairly well but it's still you need a backup method pit tagging them um, because the tattoo will fade over a decade uh, we've learned though when you tattoo them to push on where the tattoo should be and it heals as a brand so if you push all the capillary all the blood out of the capillaries where the tattoo should be it kind of highlights the old tattoo Okay, that's good to know. So kind of press the thumbs down to yep. sort of make Push the... all the blood out. And it, it, it basically is just highlighting the number. Really, it was an uh, interesting observation that works really well. Whenever we catch a turtle now, we, we of course, want it for a pit tag. But if we don't see the, the, the tattoo, because it, might, it might be 10 years ago that we tattooed it. Uh, if you push on it, the mark's still there. Right. Well, that yeah, that's a a unique way of doing it for sure. After I did the presentation at JMIH, that was uh, a few people had questions about that 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 technique, and I think that one of the guys see, he he mentioned uh, CJ mentioned that uh, he's going to try to do it on frogs. I, I don't know how well it will work, but he's uh, that's why I was asking you about it. But. I mean. The reason why we thought the tattoos would last on on soft shells was simply because in bear banding, they uh, in Pennsylvania and probably elsewhere, they tattoo bear lips. So if you're tattooing inside the mouth, which is an aqueous environment, and that tattoo lasts, should last in an aqueous environment. Yeah, I just wonder kind of the needle with small gopher frogs, how it would work. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that's Good point. Uh, that would be an interesting. Have to, uh, have to see how long it lasts and how long they want it to last. If they just want it to last for a year, maybe it'll work. Follow up with them about it. It was kind of an interesting <laughs> idea. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like uh, that sort of covers a lot of stuff, and and just real exciting to talk in depth about a lot of the work. I'm excited to see sort of where it goes because it's it's not really turtle demographics and population analyses seem to be kind of NAFTRG is really the only group that's been doing this for a while. There's not a lot of Thanks. I other 
Right. I mean, there's not a lot of other groups doing this sort of work, and it's really important to understand kind of these these baselines. It takes it takes time, and, and most of the studies are funded for either grad projects or PhD projects. So you're looking at a two year project or maybe a four year project, and to get long term analysis, it's not long enough. And the only way to do that is to like Jerry. Jerry's been very successful out of the uh, college realm of being able to get students to come in on a yearly basis to do that. And I would love to see other professors start programs like Jerry has. And what we do, you, you, that citizen science aspect and college, bringing college students in where you get that repeat volunteerism uh, is the only reason why it works. Right, right. Well, we've got, I mean, it, I'm going to make sure that Ken gets down there. He's at Georgia Tech, so he's close by. We've got some people we can recruit. Some serious Bring them down. Yeah, Tabitha and Wayne would love to have a new set of, of volunteers. For sure. Well, we'll do that. I feel like that's a good time to sort of wrap it up. But uh, thanks for coming on, Eric. It's been Absolutely. great to, to have you on the show finally. So uh, I appreciate, the really appreciate it. All right. For viewers out there, that's uh, the turtleroom.org slash Colonia cast. Uh, we will see you on the last episode of season one, which is 30 uh, next week.